Welcome to Innovating Leadership, Co-Creating Our Future. I'm your host, Maureen Metcalf. I'm the founder and CEO of the Innovative Leadership Institute. Today, we're gonna be talking about building communities within the business. And this is the first in our Connex Executive Insight Series brought to you by Connex Partners. Connex Partners is the number one executive network for HR and healthcare professionals. With me on the show today is Alice U. LeClaire. Alice, let's start with the idea of driving community building within the organization. For many of our listeners, that's something they are unfamiliar with and may not even understand why they should care. Right. When we talk about community, in my opinion, and this is just my opinion, community can be built up from multiple foundations. The cornerstone could be geography or ethnicity. It could be based on a value or hobby, such as socially responsible investing or robotics. And it could be built up from a specific role or job function, such as the executive assistant or thrubmaster community. So in companies today, what community looks like is hopefully a multi-generational collection of minds building cool things together in order to mitigate tension, close gaps getting in the way of the organization's desired outcomes as articulated in its mission, vision, and values. And I would also add that community is where we see the coming together of things our talent base has in common or have to teach. In the past, we've seen things like employee resource groups, and they're often based on ethnicity or gender orientation or things like that. (laughs) What it sounds like is this would encompass that, especially when we're trying to engage remote workers. You said people who share a hobby, which typically hasn't been the purview of what we talk about at work. So it could be people who appreciate gaming and coming together, even if they're not on the same team. Absolutely. Absolutely, Maureen. And the benefits of a community when it's built really well Mm -hmm. is that there are havens of fun and engagement and a helpful spirit, Mm -hmm. which complementary to that, building a community within a business embeds a source of truth. So as an example, if you've never served in the military or you have no prior experience collaborating with talented people of Southeast Asian descent, you want to be very patient as an organization and as a human being to take the time to bridge into those communities where members and representatives can serve as a source of truth. To your point around ERGs, there is a view that it's not the responsibility of a qualified member of a community to educate others because that can get understandably exhausting or indeed emotional. So what I would offer in response to that point of view is that education can be small in size and gentle in nature. Hmm. It doesn't have to carry the weight of a board level presentation or declaration to the masses. It can be interpreted as a sharing of stories and perspectives that serve as a qualified representation or qualified allyship to a particular community. Because again, what we're trying to do is reduce, if not eradicate, ignorance and offense in the workplace that we know can have serious ramifications for people and their teams. One of the words you mentioned that I think is so crucial for me is allyship, because it's hard in some cases for people to advocate, pick the nationality we expect people of color to advocate for themselves and Asian people and LGBTQ people. And yet 
I may not be any of those. And it's easier for me to advocate because it's not self-serving. I'm able to be a good ally. And I have male colleagues who are brilliant allies for women. Indeed. And I, and I can't stress this enough. Be patient with yourself as a human being and companies I encourage to be patient with their employee base. Nobody has written the book on this based on a thousand years of experiences. We're entering this space and this arena in new and vibrant ways, and we're going in the right direction. But it's also important to remember that it's about a celebration and it's about being patient. People are working remotely. Some will never return to the office. This community seems like an antidote to isolation and depression. One of the many antidotes that we need. It very well could be. And I have seen examples and in the executive networks that I'm a participant of have heard uh, firsthand about employees in workplaces needing to release tension, needing to release anxiety, alleviate stress over the course of their workday in a way that's tangible and real. And it can be something as deep as, as identity, or it could be something as lighthearted as a, a great true crime podcast or a wonderful book mm -hmm. that coming together, what is your favorite cocktail? What is your favorite mocktail? We're just a community of people that want to take a breather and want to have a laugh together. And the more to your point that this can be facilitated, if not normalized in the workplace, mm -hmm. because we will remain remote to varying degrees. Coming to work is being redefined in real time, and that's okay, and that's a positive thing. But what we'll always need as human beings is that ability to connect, laugh, and smile with each other in ways that we feel we're seen, understood, and safe. So as you say that, I'm thinking with any coming together of community, there's also a sense of exclusion if I'm not in that community. So if I'm not a gamer, I work with a group of clients, many of whom are cyclists. When we come to a meeting, they're all talking about cycling. In some organizations, there's the in-group and out-group of golfing versus non-golfing. How do you navigate, or is that just irrelevant? I'm not going to be in every group and I need to get over it. I wouldn't say it is irrelevant, but what I would offer is the reason we're together in this shared environment in the first place is because we're part of a company that has set out to enrich the success of their customers. So if we have that as our shared perspective and outlook, then whether we're a gamer or a cyclist can be an interesting fact that exists within that ecosystem, but it is not the reason that we are interfacing with each other during the work week. Again, this is earlier in my career. I don't golf. And so there were the club of people who got together around golfing and then those who didn't. And it was occasionally seen as discriminatory, but I could always have learned to golf. Nobody mm -hmm. excluded me. I excluded myself not choosing to do that. Are we shifting what's the in-group doing and artificially excluding people? So I like your point that we're all here to serve the mission. There are always going to be people who are interested in dogs and cats or their children or pick the thing, feeding the homeless. And we're just going to have natural affinities and those affinities build our success as an organization. 
That's right. And employees can make the choice if they want to look at that, let's say, popular activity as a magnet and they start to feel magnetized towards it, or if they want to take that on as a bridge. And to your point, take the golf lesson, improve their swing, develop a handicap and bridge completely over to that side. And the wonderful thing is that those kinds of decisions, that kind of time allocation completely up to the employee based on what their aspirations are. Mm -hmm. So let's shift gears a little bit. How do data, technology, and merit-driven approaches to employee development help to retain and evolve our traditional networks? So we talked about ERGs and things like that, and then newer networks that are evolving. There are enablers to those. Technology is a fantastic topic. Mm -hmm. One that I don't get asked about a lot. So let me first clarify that I am passionate about technology, but I don't offer a background in computer science and would never pretend that I can have a tech conversation to the degree of detail that a systems engineer or cloud architect at a hedge fund, for example, would be able to have. That said, my sense and growing perspective on how companies can shape trajectory and growth through the elements that you mentioned, those tech-driven items, data, AI, machine learning, et cetera, that has significant potential to alter the way work gets done, how communities are formed, and how information can compel us to make better and iterative decisions that are higher in quality and move at a clip that will keep pace with the market leaders of any particular industry. Because you and I are coming at this from a perspective of HR leadership and innovating leadership in the HR space, here's a potential evolution over time that, that may cross the desk of the future HR leader. So if we assume that an employee is an investment in the company's human capital portfolio, which is a safe and right assumption, Key touch points in that employee experience is a rich and vibrant information set that your organization can cut and analyze across any number of ways. Through software, you can have a continuous capturing and delivery of huge amount of data that lean into communities that have been built, shaped, and formed. And that data continues to get processed dynamically, which you then query and drop into your intuitive data visualization API that wields a significant degree of power because being able to visualize what is going on with your talent base versus talking people into the ground about it or dumping a raw data set into their lap and putting the onus on them to use their imagination it's a completely different experience from seeing a heavily, densely populated quadrant of colorful dots that, let's say, just so happens to be the very quadrant you don't want to see heavily populated. Because maybe that quadrant represents employees who find the company's strategy incomprehensible or who do not believe the company displays an inclusive culture, or who in the last six months have contemplated leaving due to being bullied by their manager. So this visualization tool, this tech capability, is a lever of key insight that when you pair that with AI technology, you can design some math and logic to obtain new information sets and empower different communities in your organization with a data-backed view. So to get even more geeky about it, 
you then can potentially craft the training of machines to learn from the AI where positive, neutral, and negative attitudes expressed in the text get aligned with best-in-class recommendations and your cause-and-effect relationships. And then you're potentially starting to predict what things and effects a sentiment turnaround among these communities can have on your organization. You can look to a hungry machine to power through those human capital quantitative analytics to measure and model the return on investments you've made in your people for your people who are part of communities. And we're going to continue to see that shaped and formed and driven in more and more tech-enabled, tech-driven ways as HR leaders. That train has left the station. Actually, I should be more. That rocket ship has left the planet (laughs) and we're on that ride as HR leaders. I love this topic and we don't talk about it often. The questions you talked about, are those based on surveys or is it scraping all of the communication that people are having through email and Teams and Yammer and whatever, and then the AI analyzes it? So it you're not waiting for an employee survey every day. The AI is scraping and assessing all of that and then some. So if we if we think about data as a compass, we take that compass to our team, any team, finance team, HR team, product team, whatever team you're part of, whatever community you affiliate with, you can then challenge yourself to establish a really compelling narrative validated by multiple data sources. And I should emphasize that not everything has to go out with a bang from these data discoveries. It's more than acceptable to design and launch a pilot or a beta to get some early temperature checks so that you pivot as needed. You mentioned strategy as an example. I could share the strategy with a pilot group and then gain their sentiment Typically, leaders go off, they do their strategy in some fancy resort, and then everyone else gets a wallet card or something, right? (laughs) Um, That's a little old school, but some people still do. And then there's the other end of the spectrum where everyone's engaged. This creates an opportunity to engage without bringing 60,000 people on a virtual town hall. Yes. And... Let me make up something on the spot to further cultivate this idea. Mm -hmm. If I'm an HR leader at a company whose short-term priority is to grow the analytics business by 60% this year, I want to be looking across a robust flow of data sources to teach me about human capital optimization opportunities that exist within that analytics business. So in other words, where do we see those harmonization points of employee records with talent strategy? HR leaders today can tap into data sets ranging from merit increase outcomes, engagement surveys, to your point, pay benchmarks, candidate pipelines, OPEX, turnover, and performance. There are numerous choices that leaders can make in terms of where they want to call, where they want to harvest, where they want to ingest all of that kind of information. So if I see that programmers in this analytics business gave the company an ENPS score for five years in a row of a negative 20, if I see they have historically been underpaid and are allocated a material lower 
budget than areas of the business that, in fact, are not expected to grow to that degree of rate and trajectory in the short term, then I want to begin crafting an authentic story with my business partners to those in decision-making or highly influential leadership roles. And perhaps the story we want to tell is a reimagining of our analytics business programmers as a community Mm. with which we will focus on in a meaningful way, in a legitimate way, in an effort to better understand what their aspirations and motivators are. So then we're starting to do authentic retention to collectively build the community levels of trust, knowing that they're at different levels of experience in terms of their career as well as life as a human being. But that's okay because we're not proposing to be the smartest people in the room. What we're saying is that we've cultivated a data-backed point of view, and you, as a high-level leader, are in the position of being able to determine one thing or the other. The business has already stated that this area must grow Mm -hmm. by a substantial degree. So in that sense, we're already on the same page. Great. Therefore, the HR leader in the scenario does themselves and their customers a favor to take on a community-building approach and invite representatives from that programmer community within the analytics business at multiple levels to openly share their pain points and their reasons to stay. Because then what have you done? You've harvested all of that data, but you're also bridging into people and bringing the empathy and the human element and the story sharing and crafting together, weaving a wonderful tapestry of lines of communications and information into the perspectives and decision-making that is always going to be happening. Decisions are done on an ongoing basis. We don't make a decision and then become stagnant. It is a constantly turning wheel of vibrant opportunity for the business and its people to grow together. I love what you're talking about, specifically the range of data now available. And I think you said that hungry machines can crunch it readily. Yeah. I spent a little bit of my career in finance. We crunched a lot of data. Unfortunately, it was not hungry machines. It was me at a keyboard Ah. with Excel sheets. So it takes a lot of time to gather the data and crunch it in that era where at this point, especially with AI and machine learning, the machine can learn much more quickly than I could learn in crunch. That's right. So the insights pop out for the wise HR business partner or leader, because otherwise I'm going to the programmer community and saying, what's your pain point? And if I talk to the wrong person, I may take an approach where the data doesn't match the conversations I had. That's true. And by the way, I don't envy um, your role as crunching through Excel spreadsheets and producing alpha. The other advantage that we see in machine learning, of course, is, is that very point where you could say, dear computer, when you take these thousand factors within these 35,000 circumstances, what do you believe is the probability that this community will outperform in their first year on the job or their fifth year on the job? And how does that compare to these other comparative communities that we have architected in order to consistently reach our growth objectives over the span of 10 years? To ask a human being to do that, not realistic, not going to happen. 
challenge machine learning technology to build that and output that completely within the realm of reality and a really exciting future of work opportunity if we think about the HR profession and the changing types of roles that exist within that profession. I'll share a secret with you and your listeners. Five years ago, I started talking to people about the idea of an HR quant because we know performance matters, we know pay matters, we know perspectives matter. So is there a role in the future of work within the HR profession where that quantitative analysis is what somebody manages, directs, and creates science around for an HR organization for a living? I would say yes. Actually, I can tell you of an organization that employs them to create these programs that you're talking about that do the scraping and analytics because someone has to know what analytics to calculate and things like if we launch a change in our comp plan, Mm -hmm. we can now watch using this software, we can watch the employee sentiment and some people are going to be annoyed and some people are going to love it. And so it'll, you know, you'll see waves of stuff and then you can tell when it turns toxic and by which groups and by how much and then calculate from that the probability of attrition. And the leadership team can then say, okay, it turned toxic. It stayed toxic for three days. We have to do an intervention versus there's a blip and some people got each other riled up and now we're fine. Amazing. Real-time quantitative analytics attached to probabilities. And this is where I think is different than if I happen to walk into the pod of cubicles where they're annoyed, I don't necessarily know that there are 10,000 other people who love the decision. That's right. I can't talk to all of them. The data gives me a much broader view than I can possibly get as a human being. Yes. And organizations are expected to grow. And so it is not as if those 10,000 people that you're referring to are going to be the same 10,000 people in those same roles 20 years from now, two years from now. Two months. Two months from now, exactly, Maureen, at two months from now. So the more that we can create dynamic capabilities of workplace sentiment, the more that we can step away from relying on that one person who had that last conversation and who has the password to that last survey and instead turn all of that ownership into the rightful hands of the organization, the better. These things do need to live beyond us, the learnings, the lessons, and the opportunities. Technology is another way that we can ensure that that happens. I love that we are pairing leading-edge technology with super smart HR leaders and really, one, liberating the HR leader from all of the... Administrative burden? Yeah. I know that machines can't solve the problem that I've got five people in my office and they all have a different point of view. It is left to me to figure it out, but data certainly helps. Yes, it does. And as we continue to be more harmonized as a global community that works together, it may be that those five differing points of view are what gives you as a leader that competitive advantage, because you will have that much better and more robust of an understanding of the world. And what is the world? The world is your customers. The world is your shareholders. The world is your candidates. The world is your social media followers. 
the world is everybody that we want in this shared journey of trying to become better and grow smarter. And that is something where I think as leaders, we wouldn't have seen as a competitive advantage not that long ago, five people who disagree with each other because they come from five completely different perspectives. How it, oh, no, thank you. But in this era and in the future of work, for somebody like me, that's a potential cause for a huge celebration because now we have that much more insight and intelligence that we can use to stay on the front foot and that much more ahead of the competition because of those differing points of view. As you say that, I think of multi-generational workplaces. You've talked about the range of stakeholders that we're now responsible to that I, as a traditional business leader, probably didn't care about. You know, somebody said something on Twitter and so what? Now I actually have to care, especially when we as leaders are all competing for talent, the reputation and what Glassdoor says or other things I have to care about. Yes. Anybody who is is still not convinced that strong and differing points of view come in real time, let me invite them to read online commentary in response to just about anything. We have loud voices and we have strong opinions and we have mechanisms to relay those in dynamic ways. And so I like how you've articulated the caring side of that. Because what you didn't say is, I need to take a sledgehammer to everything that I'm doing because of what I read online. What you said is, I need to care about this. Because that tells me that you as a leader, you're listening to what those online commentary and what those tweets are saying. You're not jumping into action and trying to solve everything all at once and going into panic mode, but you're listening. And when people post, that is a large part of the spirit of which, for the authentic posters, that they're going for. They want to feel heard. They want to know that leadership is listening. And they are hoping that based on what they've shared, based on that listening, that change can be affected. The role of HR has changed, and we're talking about from a tech side, there are issues with workplace depression that we would send those off to EAP. There are just a range of issues now as the world's getting more complex, as we've got COVID, as we've got people vaxxing and anti-vaxxing and masking and anti-masking and all of the stuff. Where does the role of the HR leader start and where does it end? Or does it have no end? That's a great question. I think the role of the HR leader is a mix of culture champion, values, trustee, influencer, collaborator, to normalize participation in a community. So to the degree that we can craft the workplace being where you not only deliver to your company's goals, but it's also a place where you demonstrate right values and behaviors, and it's where you lean on and in to your community of choice, be they gamers, be they golfers, be they Star Trek fans, be they people who come from China or Gambia, your community of choice to keep yourself refreshed and grounded. And the more that that sense of community is normalized, 
within the culture and within the values that complement performance within a company, Mm -hmm. we would never say that that is a cure in the clinical sense, in the medical sense. But what we could offer is that it is a well-being practice and or an opportunity for personal development Mm -hmm. to become an active participant and lean into your community of choice in the workplace. You know, as you say that, what comes to mind is the Gallup research about best friend at work. Mm. And if I have a best friend at work, the probability of being engaged is much higher. I think the statistic is if I don't have a best friend at work, my probability of being engaged is like 8%. I may not have a best friend in my department, just may not work out that way. But it does seem that adding the layer of communities especially affinity groups, however we slice them, gamers, golfers, nationality, ethnicity, someplace, if it's a company of more than 10, I should be able to find someone I have something in common with. And that commonality helps me feel the things I need to feel as a human being to be healthy and well. And the healthy and well then leads me to be a highly engaged employee. And the other love about community within the workplace is it can be tethered right back to the work itself, where you have a community of people who want to come together and brainstorm Mm -hmm. about a new functionality or feature embedded within the UX UI experience. And you've been contemplating and thinking about it and whiteboarding about, well, let's create a community on what might be a really great thing to chase after. And oh, well, as a community, we've decided not so great after all, pivot. Now we're going to try to go after this. Whether it is a best friend at work or that community of friends at work that gives us the energy as well as the rest, the physical mental rest while we're at work, because we spend a lot of time at work, then all the more reason to lean into that and embrace that where and as you're able to. So there are some really interesting programs that I've heard about or been part of within companies to help embed this. Mm -hmm. There's what's called the program of 2 p.m. So no matter where in the world your employees are, from 2 to 3 or 2 to 3.30 p.m., they block that time as being out of office. And that time is for the focus work, the creativity, or it could be that designated time to think about their community and the way they want to enrich their community, what's going on in their community. Again, that time for there to be quiet after the noise. There's a lot of additional things that companies offer that employees simply don't know about. And because they don't know about it, they're not pursuing it. And so a free of cost action to take that companies can do is create some light touch promotional campaigns internal where they drive publicity around things that the company offers. Some companies offer paid volunteer days. Some companies Mm -hmm. offer one day a month where there are to be no meetings. The end. On the last Friday of every month, there are to be no meetings. A little bit different if it's an emergency with an external customer. There's always going to be that sub-bullet point. We understand that. But generally speaking, the principle you're going through that is this unified. And then what's happening? Then your entire company is a community enveloping a shared practice whereby that last Friday of the month, it's a meeting-free day. 
and nobody has to spend 11 hours in the same posture looking into that video camera and trying to keep their shoulders and their and their hip flexors <laughs> in, a, in a good, healthy spot. I would love to see a day with no email. The idea that my email box could be empty or at least that I could work it through and have nothing land in it for 24 hours would be such a gift. Well, Maureen, they say be careful what you wish for. So what would you think to a world where all those emails are replaced with TikToks from your coworkers? Yeah, that... <laughs> not. <laughs> no, I will not invite my coworkers to start sending me TikToks. You heard it here. Don't do that. Coworkers of Maureen. So we've been talking about then the traditional roles of HR. Where do they stop? Where do they start? You've got some interesting ideas on the way experience can shape the fortunes of a company. What roles do data visualization and even AI and learning create in these community experiences, especially in areas like recruitment? We talked about the AI and employee sentiment. And my understanding from at least one company that does this is that can drive a significant bottom line impact. We haven't talked about using it for recruiting. So let's shift the conversation to how I would use data analytics, AI to drive recruiting in a time where everyone is fighting for talent. The good news here, actually, there's multiple points of good news, is that this is a series of studies and conversations that, in fact, have been taking place over a significant period of time. And so we have facts and figures that teach us about the cost implications of bad hiring decisions, or maybe what we would instead call it our unfortunate hiring decisions. We also know from pure math that in revenue generating roles, if those chairs are empty, then you don't have somebody marketing the products, building the products, selling the products, deploying the products, onboarding the customer onto that product. And so that too is a recruitment-driven, math-proved issue for an organization. Mm -hmm. And then we also know, we're not there yet, but maybe in the future, when the company sets its budgetary process, they don't go rolling into that process saying, and this year we're going to allocate the most OPEX to the HR department. Better luck next year, sales, but this year we're going all in for, for <laughs> HR. So if that has happened in your organization, call me. I want to meet you. You'll go work there? <laughs> you thought, well, let me, call me. Uh, so where we can, as HR leaders, leverage technology to drive the results at scale that are expected, required, and asked of us in real time, technology, in terms of AI, that is a tremendous opportunity and should absolutely be something that we go in with both feet and both hands and all of our being because that machine, which is part of that artificial intelligence, powering through the human capital analytic to measure out the probability of active return on the investment we're making. And by investment, that could be investment of time with a particular candidate, mm -hmm. or that could be the literal investment in terms of what we are spending on this particular person to solve the problem that we as an organization have identified we can't do in-house. We must go to market, that is the hiring market, in order to solve this problem for us. And that can, as we all know, get very expensive very quickly. And so the more that we can lean into and optimize our efforts 
around the benefits of AI tools in the hiring process, but better. And those models, by the way, they have across many, if not all of the core role types at this point, can drive those predictive analytics for your HR teams, for your hiring managers, and show with a data-backed view of the five people you are evaluating for this role. The AI has stack ranked them in this order based on these points. Therefore, the recommendation is to go with candidate C for the role. And these are things then like predictive index or higher directions. Each has their own algorithm and AI that does that kind of work. Yes. Great. I think that's really helpful because especially with the limited talent, war for talent, whatever word you put to it, finding and getting people is so hard that if I get the wrong one, the cost is really now even worse. It is. Just as there's a crazy competition for products and the digitization of how we live our daily lives, there is intense competition for talent in terms of the way that we operate, perform, and achieve as a company. And we see more and more in the data and in the results that those top performers, they are driving a significant share mm -hmm. of that result. It's not as if it somehow magically equates to equal levels of contribution across 10 people. What you find across those 10 people are those top two or three they are your rock stars and they are pulling more than their share because they have an uncanny degree of talent, capability and grit with which they drive into that role. So kind of the basic 80-20 rule, I'm going to have top performers that really do drive results and then I'm going to have the rest of the group who are still good. That's right. So let's shift gears just a little bit. Let's zoom in from the macro of community development and analytics down to the micro. What programs or strategies do you think are most effective at giving individuals the personal support they need to keep going amidst all of the challenges that we're facing, the isolation, the challenges with childcare when schools are closed, especially given that HR itself isn't the mental health department, you're the HR department, but folks struggling, I assume, often come to HR. Yes. There is a really profound conversation happening in the HR industry where we have asked ourselves, how did the plot point become when you need people to change their opinion and their behavior, call HR, leave the manager alone or the manager's manager alone because they're busy and they're, they're not as interested. It's HR's job and responsibility to change the way this person thinks to like what they currently don't like, to do what they're currently not doing. Now, I will say HR can consult and offer solutions. They can facilitate dialogue and they can provide really positive practices around coaching, around upskilling, tools and resources. There's a wealth of things that your HR leader can provide and partner with you on. But let's not forget that human beings are flawed. Human beings, when they're at this stage of life and they're entering the workforce, 
may or may not be prone to do something because HR says so in this day and age. Or any day and age, by the way. Or any day and age, right. <laughs> and honestly, have we taken the step back and really gotten to the heartbeat of what the issue is? No? All right. Well, then let's work on that together. Mm -hmm. So you're a leader that's based in London. You've got somebody on your team based in California. When you start your day at GMT 8 a.m. and you're asking that team member to join the weekly meeting series and they're in California and they are calling HR, what HR says to that is, let me help facilitate a conversation. I'm not going to be the turnkey. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to elevate some perspectives. I'm going to facilitate a mature dialogue. And I'm going to encourage the two of you to go point to point on learning and realizing together what the smart solution is to this issue. I may, as an individual, say I would never do that. But this is not about me. It's not about what I would or would not do as Alice U. LeClaire. This is about a teaching opportunity. It's about a conversation opportunity, and it's about a growing together opportunity for people who are important members of the business. You know, it also sounds like there is a leadership opportunity. And I think of this conversations about how people feel about performance appraisals mm. and the idea that I, as an employee, don't like them. They're uncomfortable. And part of the reason they're uncomfortable is because leaders don't some leaders, maybe many leaders, depending on the organization, don't do them well. So is it that we're just going to stop giving people feedback or are we going to help create processes that are more supportive and generative and that employees can have the psychological safety to hear both the positive comments, but also the growth opportunities? Because in some ways, it seems like we are hearing the feedback that some of these processes are painful, but we're not addressing the gap in leadership skills in some cases. That's right. And when it comes to reviewing someone's performance, the framework that we should all try to cultivate in our business relationships is a backing into instead of a processing of. So if we know that 90 days from now, we're going to have a focused conversation with everybody on their team on how the past 90 days went. At the start of that 90 days, we want to over-communicate with those team members in terms of the shared expectations, the shared understandings, the shared line of sight that we have, so that 90 days from now, people are not in a state of shock. What do you mean that was what you expected from me? Or what do you mean you didn't know that that was going to be a crucial milestone in this program? And that kind of dialogue constructed either through a formal review process or through knowing that every 90 days, the culture of, of your team that you lead is there's a focused conversation on how things are going. Almost doesn't matter because you're creating that shared understanding and set of expectations so that there's less and less chance for someone to be in a state of shock, irregardless of which side of the webcam that they're on. Mm -hmm. And the reason I bring this up is it was an example of 
some leaders are brilliant at this mm. and other people look to HR to give the feedback. Like, oh, Alice, can you give these six people their feedback? No, I don't manage them. I don't see them on a regular basis. I'm not sure how I would do that. Well, can the HR business partner do it? No. Yes. My sense is that in some cases, HR is being asked to do things to fill the gap where leaders are just not well enough prepared. I would agree with that sense. I would also say that when people become leaders of people, they've achieved that career milestone in any number of ways for any number of reasons. And when they step into that role, they're equipped with not the same graduate certificate from the Here's How to Be a Tremendous Leader of People Institute. Mm -hmm. They're coming at it from any number mm -hmm. of stories. I have read an article that landed something with me that I thought was so simple, and yet I would have never thought of it. When somebody is given an executive assistant, where did they learn and how did they derive what they will utilize and where they will position their executive assistant and, and, and how to handle and how to drive the kind of result? I mean, it, it was just such an interesting perspective in this paper. And I took a seat back and I said, you know, that is one of so many things that when somebody is inheriting a role and appointed to a completely new set of responsibilities and resources, that as HR leaders, we want to be acutely aware of that and create some mechanisms with which we're offering ideas and positive practices mm -hmm. to better enable them towards success. I want to pivot to a final question, which is, what do you think the ideal next step is beyond today's priorities? And how can strategically minded HR executives begin or continue to prepare for it? Because we've talked about a range of topics and the future of work, which is a topic you and I are both passionate about through the lens of HR professionals. How do we get there and get our organizations there? I love this question, and I, I hope that I don't initiate the glazed over eyes and ears of your listeners <laughs> in my answer, but I honestly believe HR leaders have a real-time opportunity to completely reimagine the landscape. In that exercise or exercises of reimagining that landscape, it's important that HR leaders translate that vision into the language of their company in order to get what they believe is needed for customers, people, candidates, shareholders, observers, and investors. Because here's the thing about being an HR super user. You have a particular kind of vernacular, acronyms, phrases, and things that on the ears of your perhaps CTO or your VP of legal contracts, etc., it's a bounces right off and it is meaningless. So that's the second part of this opportunity. Once you've done the wonderful work of reimagining and repainting that landscape, it does need to go through a translation service for the benefit of your company and your ability to influence that. Because we owe it to ourselves to reimagine HR leadership as product design, solution sales, entrepreneurialism, and growth and value-driving partnerships with people all across the business to generate that collective success. 
you have the chance to map out how you emerge, whether it's your personal brand or the brand of your team, the HR function as a whole, you have an opportunity to reintroduce what you do and what you contribute in the way that you connect to the people of your company and the communities that create that company as a whole. The last thing I'll say about this is it's not easy to do. By, by getting really excited about that in my answer, in no way, shape, or form am I, am I trying to say, oh, and then they'll give you uh, 70 million in OPEX and you're off to the races. No, no, it's really, really hard because there are stereotypes. There are histories when people hear the word human resources. Company leaders are coming together and saying, we have a gap, $50 million gap currently in our cash position. We better call HR to help us solve this. That's not where we're currently at. But what might it look like in a future state when we reimagine what gets a company to that point where the call they want to make when there's a cash position gap is to HR or the people department, depending on how your organization refers to it. And that is the future of our work. That is the future of our community. And that is the opportunity looking at us today. You know, as you say that, what strikes me, I'm working with an organization that's just reimagined their vision, and it's a fairly new senior team. Each of the leaders is now reimagining what they do as an organization. They don't have a chief people officer. That role is called something else and ranges from quality to learning and development. And so it's interesting that individual has a really interesting role in imagining. And with the talent shortage, the role of the people department has taken more priority because mm -hmm. they can't deliver their services effectively right now because they don't have the people. As of time in history, this is an interesting opportunity for strategically minded, proactive people department people to really demonstrate huge value and then tying in communities, setting culture, harmonizing, leveraging assessments, leveraging AI to predict sentiment, to drive bottom line, right? If product development launches something and the people in marketing think it's stupid and we collect data that everyone says, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then they're writing emails to each other saying, this is the worst product we've ever launched. You can collect that data and fix instead of getting to market and having your customers say, you know, that's kind of not the product we want to pay for. Some of these things now come out of the people department that just weren't possible even two or three years ago. The rapidity of which things are changing is both interesting and auspicious. I am all in, in terms of the excitement and the optimism. People whose primary role is chief people officer or CHRO Folks who are bringing to the business the human talent that is so crucial, especially in kind of the knowledge environment, that role or group of roles becomes so much more important as a strategic partner. And it requires that person or group of people to be confident in taking the seat at the table, not waiting to be invited. The senior team really does become a more knights of the round table group of equal perspectives rather than hierarchy of less important versus more important, even though we're sitting in the same room. 
that is a good thing. That's a leading indicator that you're growing and that the world is growing. It really wasn't that long ago where you would have a head of sales and that was the job. We now have chief revenue officers because of growth, because of innovation, because of innovative leadership, because of that round table of perspectives, experiences, knowledge, harmonizing into data sets, collectively building those stories together of your opportunity, of your risks, of your competitive landscape, your addressable markets, of the sentiment that has been garnered from online. So it will be very interesting two generations from now. What are these roles doing? What are they expected to achieve in a single performance year? What is the hope for that role over a three-year period of time? We'll continue to see how it evolves, and it will no doubt be very, very interesting. In the perfect world, what would you love to see in 2023? You mean beyond a budget of $7 billion for OPEX? Yeah, that one. <laughs> beyond $7 billion in OPEX for the HR executive in 2023, I would love them to push and pull between patience and urgency mm. and develop their commercial acumen to the degree needed to influence into getting what they truly believe the organization needs to thrive, to grow, and to remain competitive, and to catch the eye of investors and to drive really great experiences for their people. It's, it's so buzzy, a great place to work. Well, in 2023, I'd love to see HR leaders in that push-pull of patience and urgency, helping craft the next iterations and that upgraded series of steps into the organization being a great place to work. Patience and urgency is interesting given that it's changing every day. Mm -hmm. We are creating something that didn't exist two years ago. That's right. And it will continue to evolve and technology, along with a pandemic or endemic, will accelerate that. Agreed. Alice, it's been a delight. Thank you, Maureen. Likewise. And I trust that our listeners are hearing the range of thought from a highly strategic partner and HR thought leader. As we think about the future of work, to be thinking about everything from how do we build leaders to communities, to deploying technology, to envisioning what's possible, to driving the balance between strong revenue, strong profit, and strong people experience. Mm. And often one is sacrificed for the other. How many million do you want? Seven billion in OPEX. Seven billion and you'll fix it. I invite all of your listeners to connect with me on LinkedIn. I'm there as Alice U. LeClaire, and my profile is public. And so if they would like to follow me, I warmly welcome them to do that. If they would like to send me a message and connect, open invitation to do that as well. Thank you, Alice. And I also want to thank our sponsors, Connex Partners. They are the number one executive network for HR and healthcare professionals. They connect business leaders from across the U.S., helping them solve their greatest challenges together. Alice is a member of that network and they can be reached at connexpartners.com. 
Thank you again for listening. Please like and share our podcast. And most importantly, we are at a time in the world where everyone's best efforts are required to solve the big problems that we're facing. I invite you to bring your best self every day to making our world a better place. Mm -hmm.